when I'm talking to songwriters, what I'll sometimes say is let theology be not just a fence to you, but a doorway. Don't just look at or ask theological questions when it comes to, uh-oh, is this heresy? Am I in bounds? You know, don't just treat it like a fence that keeps you in bounds. Treat it like a door that can open up new, uh, new vistas, new views, new perspectives. And, and what I mean by that is go through the creed, for example, and ask yourself, wait, when was the last time we wrote a song about our, our future bodily resurrection? The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales. I'm editor of Premier Christianity Magazine, and that's the magazine that sponsors this show. I'm delighted to say that today, this week, on The Profile, my guest is the Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam. He is a worship leader, pastor, and theologian. Glenn was born in Malaysia, but now lives in Colorado Springs in the USA, where he is associate senior pastor at New Life Church. And Glenn visits the UK regularly. In fact, he's here right now. He's a visiting fellow at St. John's College at the University of Durham. He's also one of the founding leaders of Desperation Band, and he's co-written popular worship songs, including Your Name. He's the author of a number of books, including the newly released The Resilient Pastor. Well, Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. So good to be talking to you today. Welcome to the UK. Do you spend a lot of time here? You know, this is trip number 20 for me, but 19th in the last 10 years. So yeah, it's wow. been on average about twice a year, although it hasn't really been like that. This is my uh, first trip over in the last two years, which I guess for most people, there hasn't been much international travel, has there? I was going to say the pandemic's got in the way of all that. Yeah. Are there certain um, things that you miss about home while you're in the UK or are there certain things you look forward to when you come to the UK? I love coming to the UK for all of its history. I love I love being around old churches and cathedrals. I'm in Durham here at the moment, and I try to make sure that I step into Durham Cathedral at least once a day. It's it's a special, special place. So we always like to go back to the beginning here on the profile and hear about a person's early life. I understand you were born in Malaysia. Tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like. Yeah, I am originally from Malaysia. My dad uh, was born there as well. My mom was born in Singapore, which, of course, there used to be one uh, connected thing, Malaya. Uh, my mom was raised Anglican. My dad was raised Hindu. They met at the University of Singapore. And uh, when when uh, things started to get serious, my mom said, look, I'm not marrying a Hindu. And so he converted. And I often tell that with a bit of tongue in cheek comedy. But the truth is, there was a lot more going on there. And my dad was at the point in his faith journey where he was, you know, sort of dissatisfied with um, what he was experiencing from Hinduism and, and was drawn to what he was hearing about this loving God of Christianity. So by the time my sister and I came along, my parents were uh, following Jesus, albeit, um, you know, not, not yet wholeheartedly surrendered yet, but that was to come. And, uh, and I'm so grateful for the number of different influences in their life, which then trickled down to affect us. They were uh, invited into a Bible study by a Baptist pastor, uh, and then eventually both of them encountered the Holy Spirit through some renewal movements. And we went on um, to join a Pentecostal um, kind of independent church. But I, I tell you, my, my childhood, not only did I get an, a great appreciation for the many streams and traditions of the body of Christ, but I also understood what it meant to... Uh, follow Jesus in the midst of other options. I mean, I had lots of friends. Christianity is about 10% of the population in Malaysia and had lots of school schoolmates and, and uh, uh, friends all around, neighbors who were Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. And you learn to interact respectfully, but you also learn to appreciate the beauty of um, and the uniqueness of the Christian story. Absolutely. Has that informed your ministry since then, do you think, in America, which obviously is seen as a, a you know predominantly Christian country and where there might be slightly less contact with those of other religions? Well, I think what's interesting is there's quite a bit of anxiety among American Christians whenever uh, there's the feeling and perhaps reality of Christianity being pushed from the center to the margins. And there's a lot of anxiety about that where people say we've got to reclaim sort of cultural power. And I think the gift that maybe I've been given because of having grown up in Malaysia is that I know that the church can be a powerful influence even from the margins and not from the center of power. And I think that's important to remember. Uh, I also think on the other side of things, you know, with people who are outside the church in America who want to combine and mix and match, as it were, from other religions, 
I think there's the tendency to romanticize or simplify all religions and to say, oh, well, you know, they're all basically the same and that sort of thing. And I think when you grow up in a part of the world where there are so many ancient or older religions, you recognize, yeah, there might be some some overlaps and maybe God has left breadcrumbs, as it were, in, in, in uh, different um, uh, religious systems, there are at the same time very sharp differences, and it, it wouldn't be very polite to or respectful to those other religions to to collapse them all and say that they're basically all the same. Uh, in one sense, Sam, that's another version of Amer of Western imperialism, where instead of conquering lands, we're conquering ideas and moving them about as we see fit, and that's that, that's really a, another version of arrogance, not humility. Do you remember a particular time as a child or as a teenager where faith really became your own and it wasn't just something your parents had, but it became real to you as, as your own self, as your own individual? Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of people who grow up around the church, there's probably several moments. And I think of several moments uh, in church, um, altar calls, um, kids camps, you know, and, and retreats, youth camps. Where, where you recognize, oh man, this is, I, I do want to follow Jesus. But I do have one profound memory. There was a, a missionary who had come from the States and she primarily worked with children. And she was a speaker at one of our children's camps up in the highlands in Malaysia somewhere. And, and she gave an altar call about, about people who wanted to surrender their life to serve the Lord. And I probably was about eight years old, Sam. And, but I remember being profoundly impacted by that and just crying even as a child and coming forward and saying, God, you can, uh, you can use me. You can have me. And I think she'd, she'd probably told the story of David Livingston or something like that. And I said, okay, God, whatever your purposes are, I want you know, my life to be for your glory. So though, that's one of the moments that really stands out to me uh, uh, and, and, and has marked me. But when I was 10, our family moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon, and my parents um, were following the call of God to give up their jobs and train in Bible school. And then we lived there for three years. And I was you know, already a Christian and following Jesus, had my own faith at that time. But I remember being profoundly impacted by the sense of this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You, you make uh, decisions that are costly. Um, so at various occasions, I would say um, there, were, there were opportunities to kind of solidify or reinforce this, this life of faith. And how would you say your faith today at the age of 43, how is your Christian faith at the age of 43 different to your Christian faith at the age of 10? What's <laughs> happened in that intervening period where you look back and you say, oh, my, my faith has changed or matured or grown or developed in, in this particular way from a, from a foundation of a Christian family, taught certain things, but actually now my faith looks different in this way? Well, I would like to think it's deepened and matured, and I, I, I hope by the grace of God that it has. I think one of the things uh, that I've learned, Sam, is uh, in some ways the seeds of it were there, and that's why I told the story of the different influences on my parents' faith. Uh, but but I think for me, in the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, there's been an enriching that has happened in, uh, from other Christian traditions. So I am primarily in an evangelical, non-denominational, charismatic church, um, but I also had an ordination journey eight years ago to to be part to be an Anglican priest within the Anglican Church of North America while remaining at my non-denominational church and you know regardless of that sort of ordination piece or not the point is more recognizing the richness and the beauty and the value of other christian traditions and and being strengthened by it and and being having a more robust faith because of it i think i've learned uh, to have not just a kind of charismatic spirituality but also a contemplative spirituality where there's there are modes of singing out loud and there are modes of of being still in in an old thousand year old cathedral uh, like Durham um, so I think those are some of the ways and then and then perhaps also you, you know maybe the integration of of theological learning or study um, you know in some in some ways when I was younger it was a little more experientially driven and someone who wanted to be cerebral or to think or to read theology was sort of like, well, don't think too hard. Don't think too much, you know? And now I recognize that those things are not uh, at odds with one another at all. So, so perhaps for, for me, it's been the, the fusion of things that once were disparate, but now I realize are complementary and mutually enriching. It's interesting. You mentioned that idea of, of in some evangelical charismatic circles, this, this idea of, study not being 
perhaps so important, but certainly an emphasis on feelings, certainly an emphasis yeah. on when I sing worship songs to God, I have all these wonderful experiences mm-hmm. and feelings. And it is unusual, I would say, to find someone who writes worship songs like you do in that world, who is a pastor in that world, who has had such a deep commitment to study and to theology and actually looking at the theology of worship. It's not every day you meet someone who is both creative musically and enmeshed in the academic world. It seems mm. to me you, you strike an interesting, there's an interesting balance between those two things that you kind of occupy. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't know how unusual it is, but I do know that I have felt like an outsider in both worlds sometimes. <laughs> I know that I've been in academic uh, circles where I think, ah, actually, I do like those songs and I do want to, you know, and then I know that sometimes I've been in, in charismatic or worship circles where I think, hmm, guys, we got to do a bit more thinking about that. Um, so I will say, you know, if a person were trying to hold together influences from, from a couple of different traditions, you, you have to be... Uh, okay with feeling a little bit like an outsider in both places yeah absolutely you mentioned something a moment ago i'd love to pick up on you say um you're you are a, um, a pastor in a charismatic evangelical church and you're also ordained as an anglican so tell me a little bit more about that journey because again that strikes me as quite unusual that you could kind of do both so given that yeah. you are a pastor in evangelical church and presumably you're happy there why why go be ordained and become part of the Anglican church how did that happen you know, Sam, the only good answer I have for that is I think it was the leading of the spirit. I think the Lord led me to that, but I don't think it's necessarily the path for everyone. But what happened is we had started a service at our church on Sunday evenings, and I was given the task of running that service. And we introduced weekly communion, and we were saying the Nicene Creed, and we were praying a prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. And some Anglicans began sneaking in. No, I say sneaking in. <laughs> they were attending in the morning at their own church, and then they would come on Sunday nights. And, and one of them, a dear friend of mine said, you know, you're basically running an Anglican service at New Life. And I said, no, I'm not. And I didn't know too much about what I was doing. But over the course of a few years, through the friendship, through that conversation, uh, I met uh, the bishop in my area. And he said, you know, there's something to this. And it might be that God is up to, to something with you to to possibly be a bit of a bridge. And I, again, I, I want to be careful that I don't make too much of myself here, but so maybe a speck in a plank of a bridge <laughs> between these worlds of saying, uh, I, at the very least, going through the ordination journey will help me resource from the Anglican tradition in a proper way and not in, a, um, in an irresponsible way. And then in another sense, maybe to be able to help that tradition to say, hey, there's some things about church planting or missional engagement that, that we can think about that might be helpful. So I've enjoyed it. I, I would say that most of the Anglican stuff for me is subterranean. It's under the surface. Uh, the bulk of my ministry life uh, happens without uh, anyone necessarily realizing that. Um, but it is enriching to me and grounding, grounding for me. So that when even when we make decisions about Lent or what prayers we might lead the church through or Advent or a Nash Wednesday service, we're not doing it you know, it's kind of an American thing sometimes to just start create everything on your own. And I think that has to be counterbalanced by a sense of rootedness. And that's what this journey has meant for me. Mm. I've certainly noticed uh, here in the UK, there's been a really interesting shift where if you you go back to maybe some of the beginnings of some of these evangelical charismatic new church movements, and you, you look back at what was said when they were beginning, and there was this perception, whether it preached or not, there was this perception that the Anglican church, the established church was dead. And that mm-hmm. we needed the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit and new life and charismatic gifts and all these things. And whether that was said or not, that was what was implied. And of course, we've seen this shift, certainly in the UK, of those same churches now doing exactly what you're saying, which is yes. going back to the roots, discovering some of these ancient traditions, even things that some charismatics would never have dreamed of getting involved in Lent. They would see it as dead religion, whereas now they see it as, actually, this is something really useful. And there's a reason why Christians did this for hundreds of years. Can we bring that back in? That seems to be some of what you've experienced as well, both personally and perhaps in your church context too. It's been fascinating for me, uh, you know, as I've gone through this journey, you know, say 10, 12 years ago, and then over the last six years or so of coming to the UK because of doing my doctorate here at Durham and would come a couple of times a year and then, and then making a lot of, of friendships with people here. It's been helpful to me, one, to not swing the pendulum to the other side or be reactionary. So 
I might have been tempted early on to say, oh, charismatic worship is to see the excesses of it and the, the places where it can be prone to manipulation or hype or whatever, especially in the American context. And, oh, the, you know, the answer is in the liturgical because it's ancient and historical. And, and my friendships with British um, charismatic Anglicans has helped me recognize now, hang on, if you go too far of that, you know, maybe for some of the churches here, they're saying, hang on, we've had 500 years of that. It's not automatically great. You still need to engage it with faith and you still need to welcome the, the breath of the spirit. And that's certainly true. So it's helped me not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But then also, I, I think... I, I would I would want to challenge some of the, the the tendency maybe here in the UK to say, oh yeah, all of that stuff, that that old prayer book stuff for the communion prayers and all that, that's just dead, and we only need the life of the Spirit here. And I would want to say, well, are there some creative ways that the Lord might fuse these things together? And it could be simple, Sam. I mean, one of the simplest ways is when we do communion, we go through essentially that full Eucharist liturgy. You know, we do the prayer confession, words of assurance. Some of it is extemporaneous. Some of it, we do follow the prayer book words. But you know what? We have the band playing under it. We have a little keyboard pad. So you have that sort of charismatic sensibility to it so that those are almost musical cues that help people recognize, oh, this isn't a moment of formality. This is every bit a moment of encounter as uh, a, a prayer line or an altar, you know, a resp worship response time. So I think even just recognizing that the same Holy Spirit that's active in the singing and in the preaching is also active in this moment of, of, of coming to the Eucharist. Absolutely. I'd love to talk. We're going to talk a little bit in a moment about your new book. Just before we get there, just picking up on something you referenced a moment ago about sometimes being in academic circles and perhaps there's sometimes being an attitude that's quite dismissive of charismatic church practices. Mm -hmm. And there will be some people who, who do, if they're honest, really say, look, look, Sam, I've heard some of these charismatic worship songs and it just it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me. And if I'm honest, it all sounds a bit me centered rather than God centered. And I just, I just kind of don't get it. You must have encountered other Christians with that sort of view. And I, presumably we can sort of say, hey, different Christians respond to different ways of worshipping and that's fine. But nevertheless, if someone were to put that a little bit more explicitly and say, no, there is a problem here, that that style of music is just very feelings and emotion oriented and just doesn't have any, doesn't have much grounding at all in good theology. What would be your response to that kind of a criticism of the kind of genre, if you like, of charismatic worship music, music where, again, if I was being unkind, I'd, I'd define it as skinny jeans and acoustic guitars. Yeah, or Jesus is my boyfriend songs or whatever. Yeah, I, I've heard all of those things, Sam. And I think that there are several problems with that critique or tricks with that critique. One is that it's a bit of a broad brush stroke. So it's just kind of this generalization. They'll pick a song lyric here or there, and there you go. That's my knockdown argument for why all charismatic or contemporary worship is bad. And one of the things, and I, I did my, my doctoral work here at Durham using qualitative research methods to study contemporary worship and specifically to examine um, it's the theological content of eschatology in contemporary worship songs and services. And when you do proper academic work about uh, contemporary worship, or even, let's just put it this way, if you are more uh, attentive, you would recognize that actually there's a whole lot more going on than, than what you uh, might think. And uh, in, in any ritual, let's just use a generic term, in any ritual, there's the text of the ritual and the performance of the ritual. In other words, you can't just look at song lyrics and say these, these you see modern worship is bad because what happens when those lyrics are sung and what happens when they're sung in a congregation and in a group? What's going on in individuals' hearts and minds when they are singing it? So there's, there's levels of complexity here that make it impossible to make these sort of broad brush statements. And that's what qualitative research can actually do is help you get inside that and listen to worshipers talking about what these songs mean. But there's, a, there's another problem, and that is maybe the premise that feelings are bad, mind is good, as if uh, rationality is inherently holier or superior to emotions. And I just don't think that's true. And I love, you know, Ashley Null is, is perhaps the greatest living scholar on Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer. And Null sums up Cranmer's understanding of the human being this way. He says, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And I think, I think we have to remember that when Cranmer put the prayer book together, there's something even about that choice. You know, you have 
Luther's arguments, you have Calvin's systematic theology, and you have Cranmer's prayer book. So it's actually deeply in English church soil to choose poetry and prayers as a mode of reformation or of formation. And so I, I think we need to actually think more deeply about the role of affections and feelings and emotions in our spiritual formation, that this isn't simply a cognitive affair. Um, and, and, and then maybe related to that, Sam, is this idea of sacramental theology, um, where God inhabits his world. And so if God made human beings with the chemistry in our brains and thoughts and emotions and feelings, and even what sociologists call energy when we get together with other people, then we, we don't need to pit these things against one another. We don't need to say, oh, well, that's just, you know, the energy of being in a crowd. That's not the Holy Spirit. Might it be both? Might it be the Holy Spirit working through the very dynamics that he created our bodies, our physiology to respond to? Now, once we address those complications, we can look closely and we should look closely at these lyrics because that's not you know, sort of a carte blanche defense of contemporary worship and let it off the hook now. Uh, no, there are some lyrics that need to be thought of and we do need to be conscious about how uh, much we're singing about ourselves versus singing about God. We do need to think about how focused we are on our breakthrough, our miracle, our whatever, as opposed to the kingdom of God or God's will. And so, so yes, we, 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 we can and must do all of those um, works of, of analysis and of critical engagement, but we can't do it when we, with a kind of a mindset that's already decided that all of this is nonsense because it's too emotional. Is there a list of banned songs at New Life where <laughs> is, can't, can't, can't touch answer, those yeah. ones? I won't answer that soon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some churches do. Some churches oh, will say okay. we're not singing. I mean, the classic example was uh, the last, uh, last time I can think of a worship song really blew up and there was a huge amount of debate was Reckless Love. Yes, a lot yes, of people yes. saying we don't believe God's love is reckless. We're not singing it. Um, you had other people saying, no, this is biblical, leaving the 99, going after the one. So some churches will say, Actually, given that people will leave my church singing, remember, remembering the lyrics sung more than the sermon preached, yes. we want actually quite tight control over what's sung in our church. Some people will sort of ban, say, like, don't play that one. Um, is that a helpful approach? I don't know how helpful it is, Sam. We don't, we don't have banned songs. There are some songs that we say, you know what, maybe we'll stay away from that one, um, but it's not with a kind of force of, you know, it being banned. Uh, I think it is helpful to talk about explaining songs. I mean, there, there are less sort of lightning rod lyrics, you know, like I think about even uh, John Mark McMillan's song, um, King of My Heart, where the bridge says, you're never going to let me down. Well, that's tricky. I remember once we were singing that in church and on the front row was a young widow whose husband's funeral I had just done a week prior. And she's weeping and just sort of in stunned silence as we're singing, you're never going to let me down. And I felt pastorally, I had to get up there and say, hey, when we sing this, we're not saying we'll never be disappointed in life. But we are saying that in the end, God will be found to be faithful and God will be shown, you know. So some of it is really how we shepherd people through these moments. In, in an academic way, what this is called is there are discourses at work in a worship service. So there's the official discourse, what's being said from the platform. There's the unofficial discourses, what people will come into church and leave church talking about whispering, saying, oh, reckless love or whatever, you know. And then there's the internal discourses, what people are, are saying in their own hearts as they're thinking or, or singing a lyric. And we can't control all of that with any lyric. So banning songs feels like, well, if you ban one, there's 10 others that are going to spark some thoughts that you. And if we're honest, the same things can come up with a sermon. Someone may hear a sermon and, and come up with the wrong conclusions about it. So I think what we're trying to do is shepherd people through those moments and to say, okay, if this is a sensitive or maybe an easily misunderstood line, maybe we don't sing it. Or if we do sing it, we're going to have some pastoral moments uh, surrounding it. Yeah. And I think what's great is even just what we're doing right now, having the conversation about a particular line and what the theology might be behind it. I think that can be really helpful to say, actually, 
we are going to you know use our minds use our brains to look, to look at these songs and what yeah. i've found in my time interviewing many of the worshipers who write these songs is they are deeply thoughtful people yes who will run their lyrics past their own pastor quite often and who even will go back to a song and think oh yeah i wouldn't have quite worded it that way and i think that gives christians confidence to know there is real work being done behind the scenes a lot of the time with a lot of these songs yeah. and even if you don't like the particular line there Mm-hmm. More often than not, there has been real thought put into that song. And you'll know that as a songwriter yourself. It's exactly right, Sam. Songwriters are, these are good people who are trying to do good work and serve the church. I, I will say when I'm, when I'm talking to songwriters, what I'll sometimes say is let theology be not just a fence to you, but a doorway. And what I mean by that is don't just look at or ask theological questions when it comes to, uh-oh, is this heresy? Am I in bounds? You know, don't just treat it like a fence that keeps you in bounds. Treat it like a door that can open up new, uh, new vistas, new views, new perspectives. And, and what I mean by that is go through the creed, for example, and ask yourself, wait, when was the last time we wrote a song about our, our future bodily resurrection? Or when was the last time we wrote about, you know, so, so rather than sitting down to write and saying, what have you been thinking about lately in your quiet time? I mean, that's OK. But what if we said, hey, let's let's pull out Augustine's confessions or let's pull out this confessional statement of the church and say, goodness, do we have a song that says that and challenge yourself to write that way? So theology can be not just a fence, but also a door. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. And that was my interview with Glenn Packiam, the author, worship leader and theologian. Glenn's latest book is entitled The Resilient Pastor. We're going to be finding out a bit more about that book in part two, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Do you feel inner conflict between truth and lies, the way of Christianity and the way of the world? If so, it's time to live no lies. With huge spiritual insight, New York Times bestseller John Mark Comer guides us into recognizing and resisting the lies that rob us of peace and freedom. Live No Lies, yours free when you take out an annual subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. I want to talk about the new book. It's called The Resilient Pastor. And this came out of some research, didn't it? Um, looking at the research behind your book says that 29% of pastors are seriously thinking about quitting the ministry. And the reasons range from the COVID pandemic and some of the pressures that's brought about to just an increased kind of secularism or an increased uh, reticence from people to, to believe in God, opposition to the gospel, even racial and social unrest that I yes. know has been happening in both our nations, really. Mm-hmm. Do you think the situation is as bad in the UK as it is the US if the statistic is 29% of pastors are seriously thinking of, of quitting the ministry? You know, first of all, Sam, that's that uh, question went out in January of 2021 in America. And then by October of 2021, Barna asked that question again, and the number was 38%. So the, the increase uh, of percentage there is concerning in the US. As far as what it is in the UK, I'm not sure. I was on an interview earlier this week with uh, um, a man who said that 20 years ago, the Evangelical Alliance had asked a question like that, and half a UK pastors were thinking of quitting. So I, I imagine the strains that pastors are, are feeling, um, they've probably felt in many, many, many moments uh, throughout the church's history, and perhaps some moments more acutely than, than our moment. But perhaps for our lifetime, uh, this might be one of the more uh, difficult moments for pastors because of the pressures, because of the expectations. Maybe it's compounded by social media where um, people have, have a voice, which is a good thing, but then they have a way to kind of bully or pressure or even misrepresent um, their churches. Or maybe pastors feel this pressure of comparison, whereas before they were just trying to take care of the people in their parish or their community. And now all of a sudden, especially with COVID, where we all went online, you know, some people decided, look, if I'm watching a church service online, I'll just watch one from somewhere else in the world or, or somewhere another city. So we, we started peering over each other's fences into each other's back gardens. And we realized now, hey, wait a minute, the grass might be greener over there. And so pastors are not being judged against themselves, but they're being compared with, with others. And that is one of the reasons um, for the strain. Tell me about some of the other, the other reasons, because clearly there's a, as you 
mentioned, there's a there's a lot going on here, and and there would be for for any of the pastors I know for them to seriously consider quitting. That's not a decision any pastor I know would take lightly. So presumably there's a number of factors, and you've spoken just there about COVID and online church, and you know I suppose online church has been great for those of us sort of in the pew, so to speak, because we can yeah. check out what the what another church is doing. But as you say, if you're a pastor, is that helpful for everyone to be comparing you? What what are the other kind of things that you think might have contributed to this statistic? Well, I know when when David Kinnaman, the president of Barna, approached me about this project two years ago, the pandemic hadn't begun yet. And he right. was 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 recognizing that the world is changing and we need to uh, talk about it or help pastors think about it. And so I, I said yes to, to partnering with them. And then, of course, when the pandemic began, I realized, Lord, this is going to become a, a, a potentially important piece of work because of the timeliness of it. So it, it gave us sort of gravitas to, or seriousness, maybe soberness to the work that we were trying to do. And I outlined eight challenges, Sam, four facing the pastor and four facing the church. And, and then we designed research questions around those challenges that went out to pastors in the fall of 2020. Uh, and then it also went out, some questions went out to the general population in the fall of 2020, which allowed us to gauge perceptions of general population toward pastors, toward churches. And I think what we learned there is there's, you know, there's several things I could say about each of those challenges, but some of the remarkable things that stand out is um, for the pastor, there is, there is, there is less vocational confidence than there used to be. Um, and we were able to kind of track some data. So in 2015, Barna had asked pastors, you know, are you, do you feel more confident of your calling now than when you first began in ministry? And in 2015, you know, 65% said, yeah, I'm more confident. In 2020, only 35% said they were more confident. And in fact, this is maybe a confusing sentence, but fewer pastors are more confident of their calling now and, and more pastors are less confident of their calling. So that, that stat actually flipped so that's, that's a concerning thing. And I think some of it has to do just from the focus groups, the pastors that I spoke with, I did, you know, three focus groups, uh, pastors in the US, UK and Canada, and talked to them about these eight challenges, pastors in small communities, urban centers, multicultural, you know, all of that, different kinds of churches. And, and some of the, the, the themes that I kept hearing from pastors is the expectations on this job are they're undoable. You know, people expect me to be a community organizer, a brilliant sort of organizational leader, uh, a theologian, uh, an expert therapist, a social activist, you know, and it's not as if pick one, it's they're they've all sort of stacked. And so the expectations of our vocation have become undoable. And then, you, then one of the other, so that's vocation, but one of the other challenges is the lack of relationships for pastors, uh, a tremendous, you know, three out of five pastors reported feeling lonely at least sometime in the last year. Um, some of them said they felt lonely frequently or often uh, in ministry. So there's a profound loneliness there, um, even sometimes related to a deterioration in their own marriages, if they're married or a relationship with their children. And then maybe the third, you know, kind of challenge there, Sam, is, is credibility this is about general attitudes toward pastors. I, I mean, only 4% of non-Christians consider a pastor, definitely consider a pastor a, a trustworthy source of wisdom. So, okay, that's not surprising, but 4% is pretty low. And then when it comes to Christians, only 31% said, yeah, definitely a pastor is a trustworthy source of wisdom. So those are, it's a disturbing thing when you have undoable expectations, you feel alone, and you feel like whatever you do, you're being met with a bit of resistance and skepticism. So those, and, and maybe some of that's well-deserved. I, I, I want to be careful. I mean, certainly some pastors have, have abused their power and, and, and that lack of loss of credibility is well-earned, but, um, but it's a difficult thing for many, many faithful pastors. Yeah. I noticed reading all the endorsements uh, in your book, there's a lot of praise for you though, in how this is a positive book. So I don't want people to get the wrong idea that actually <laughs> we're going we're gonna to come on and we will talk in the next few minutes about why you are optimistic about the future and, and how some of these issues can be solved. But just, just before we get there, it did occur to me in what you just said that partly because of social media, 
we are now all aware of almost every cause you could name. And I'm aware, even as the editor of a Christian magazine, you know, every week or every month, we could say the church should X, Y, Z. And we've every justification to say the church should care more about poverty or the church should get better about racial justice. It's not that those issues are wrong, but because there are so many and because every time you load up your social media, there's 25 Christians telling about 25 different causes. You can imagine if you're a local church pastor, you think, I, ca- I can't, I can't deal with every single important big issue that I as a church leader should care about. And yeah. it goes back to what you're saying about the kind of job description here mm. is almost what is almost too way too long. It's almost like we're, we're expecting way too much of our pastors. So is there yeah. a lesson there? Is there a lesson there just for the average Christian in their local church to just be aware of that and be aware of the demands on their pastor? And might that be part of the way of helping to solve some of these issues? I, I think so, Sam. I think there's a bit of empathy here of recognizing that your that your pastor, your priest, whatever, is a human being, and uh, they're they're called by God, but so are you. We both have mission a mission in the world, um, and we're both humans. and And so there's a there's a sense in which we have to have realistic expectations. Your pastor is not Jesus, you know. Um, and and maybe you know sometimes on social media when people say the church needs to blah blah blah. Could we maybe lean back or zoom, zoom out and say, well, the church, capital C, uh, are there Christians speaking out about this? Well, yes, there are. So, so rather than saying my local church has to address all 10 of these things, could we say the wider body of Christ is addressing all these things, but perhaps in different ways and in different modes uh, not always through a sermon or a social media post. So that, that's yeah. fascinating because exactly the same thing happens for us journalists. You'll quite often see tweets saying the media is not talking about X, Y, Z. And if you stick that issue into Google, you will find a media outlet somewhere doing it. And it's the same with exactly. it's the same with the church. People say the church isn't doing this. No, there will be. There'll be Christians somewhere doing that. Just maybe not as many as you'd like. That's very. That's a great parallel, Sam. The media does get blamed a lot, don't they? Uh, that that's a very helpful parallel. This is why I'm uh, I'm very much on the side of church leaders because I think some of the criticisms are quite <laughs> similar sometimes. Yeah, that's helpful. You're speaking at uh, a new wine gathering of leaders this coming week. So tell me a little bit about some of the things you'll be sharing with them and how you're seeking to encourage them, I guess, to be resilient leaders in the world we're living in. You know, when I think of resilience, Sam, I think of the story that the late former chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, um, talked about. Um, a story of him going in for a medical checkup and running on the treadmill and having these sensors on. He said, doctor, are you you measuring, you know, how fast I can run? The doctor says, no, that's not it. So are you measuring how far I can run? No, no, that's not it. And he's just be quiet, just keep running. And the speed's increasing and the incline's increasing. And finally he gets off and he's huffing and he's puffing. And he says, what was that all about? What are you testing? He says, I'm testing to see how quickly your heart recovers after being under duress. Uh, and that to me is the picture of why resilience matters. Resilience is a marker of health because resilience is about recalibrating after periods of stress and duress. And for, for all of us in, in life, but particularly because of this book uh, is addressed to pastors, for pastors, it's about how well we recalibrate and reorient and find north again. And and really for us, that that is about our life with Jesus. So the first night, uh, the message at New Wine is, is going to, is called Called to His Presence. And it's just an encouragement to pastors to say, remember how this all started. This didn't, didn't start because we have big dreams and big ambitions. This started because we fell in love with Jesus and he said, follow me. And, and that's exactly what we see when Jesus is renewing Peter's call after he's, you know, discouraged and disillusioned, ashamed, perhaps after he's, he's denied Christ is Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Not do you love the church? Not do you love the cause? Not do you love the move of God? He just says, do you love me? And so that's that's where it begins for pastors. And then the second day on Wednesday morning, I'm going to talk about uh, what it looks like to carry his presence, to call be called to be the carriers of his presence out uh, into the wider world. So tell me a little bit about how um, this works for you. How do you find North again? Do you have certain spiritual practices, disciplines, or, or just certain things built into your calendar that you know at the end of every week or month or yeah. quarter or year or whatever it is? Are there particular markers you put down to say, I don't want to get burnt out, I want to be resilient, and these are the sorts of things that help me uh, heading in that kind of true North direction? Yeah, I do think uh, scheduling is a big, is a big thing, and I, I generally keep my mornings open 
um, not only for you know, to start off with prayer and but also to be able to study and to not start out the day reactive. You know, I mean, I, I'll, I'll do a quick, you know, maybe 30 minute catch up on emails and Slack messages and all that stuff for the team and then block out a couple hours where I can I can do some deeper work. And and I think that keeps me from sort of just going through the whole day, just reacting to, to needs. And then I, I have time, obviously, in the day to meet with staff and then to meet with congregants. And then I even have time blocked out of my week for those unscheduled kind of moments. Um, and, and, and look, we use the analogy of, you know, finding north again. Think about a, a sailor navigating. You, you might chart a course and you could get blown off of it, but that's no reason not to keep charting a course, you know? So I don't, I wouldn't want church leaders to think, oh, it's impossible because these things, you know, keep coming up and disrupting my schedule. Well, of course they do. And they do for me too. Um, but if we never charted a course, we never set a direction, uh, we would be, we would be uh, tossed about. So, so I do think, I do think we need to Think about our schedule. I have that uh, with mornings. I also have that with uh, with the Sabbath with the family, where um, you know I'm not going to violate that. Sometimes people ask, "Can you can you take on an extra this or that?" And uh, and you you know <laughs> it's difficult, Sam. But I do end up disappointing people a lot. I'm sure I disappoint staff. I'm sure I disappoint congregants. But man, I'm I want to last. I don't want to do be a flash in the pan and then burn out. And the older I've gotten, and I, you mentioned my age earlier, I'm 43, soon to be 44. Uh, I, I, I don't want to burn out and I'm conscious that energy has changed. Um, for a lot of us as pastors, it's not just about time, it's about energy. So you might have the time to do a certain thing, but you may not have the energy to give to it. And I, I've tried to be careful about uh, being honest about that. Mm. Do you think some of the quite high profile quote unquote falls from grace we've seen of church leaders particularly during this kind of covid pandemic time you know i've yeah. i've noticed there has been quite a lot of reflection i think from leaders on that and i think christians are asking christian leaders are asking the serious questions of how did that happen why did that happen how can yeah. i make sure i don't go down that road have you as you've thought about that has there anything helpful you've heard from others or from yourself where you think yeah that we've really got to get back to that. And people have different answers to the same question, but, but broadly, I guess what I'm asking is why have there been so many pastors who, you know, sadly we as premier, we've had to report on the bad news as much as we report on the good news. And there is quite a lot of bad news out there about pastors, as you say, not, not staying the course. So yeah, does anything come to mind on how we can avoid those sorts of high profile examples in future? Well, I think, I think, uh, you know, when I said earlier that the pandemic has been sometimes an accelerator, sometimes a revealer, I, I don't know that the pandemic caused those falls. I think it maybe revealed the unhealthiness or dysfunctions that were already there. And, um, and I think for many pastors, you, you know, so I mentioned the crisis of relationships, pastors saying that they, they feel lonely very often. What's tricky about pastoral work, Sam, is it, you're, it's relational work. So you're always relating to people and you're, 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 you know, you're being empathetic and you're being, you know, so it has this illusion of intimacy. You have this feeling that you know people and that people know you, but actually it's not. Most of our relationships are asymmetrical. There's a power differential there. And most of our relationships are non-reciprocal. They don't have the same voice into our lives or initiative with us uh, as we do with them. We're often the ones convening and inviting and hosting, and it's not the same. And I think, I think what pastors have not done a great job of, maybe, maybe for quote-unquote noble reasons where we sort of thought we, we shouldn't, uh, take the time for friendships, uh, but also maybe just because of unhealthy reasons of ego, where we prefer to be in rooms where everyone adores us uh, and not in rooms where we're just another person, you know, um, whatever the case, we need relationships where we are truly just another person, where we are dearly loved, but dearly and deeply loved by, by friends, friends who have known us for a lot of years, friends who have been around us, you know, and so Sam, I, th I think there are too many pastors are living these lonely lives without genuine relationships. And we focus a lot on, quote unquote, accountability. But man, you know, I'm at a church where 15 and a half years ago, our founding senior pastor had a pretty public moral failure and scandal. Uh, you can game, you can trick, you can work the accountability systems however you want to. Uh, it's not just about accountability. It's about genuine relationships of mutuality and intimacy and that does not happen overnight mm. so pandemic comes 
a pandemic comes and people are isolated and they're in their homes and you realize you don't actually have any friends, do you? And so you start self-medicating that loneliness with alcohol or with affairs or with pornography or whatever the case might be. And, and that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. You're so right about accountability. I've noticed exactly the same thing that it's presents as this kind of silver bullet. Well, we just need pastors to be accountable. And, and as you point out, actually, if you do have a, a pastor who is, you know, in pretty serious sin here, all they have to do is lie, frankly, yeah. to the person they're accountable to. And the entire system doesn't work. So I think you're right, right that this, this kind of idea of silver bullet of accountability, it's not, as, it's not quite as simple as that, is it? It's not. And I actually argue in the book and, 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 and you know, by the way, you mentioned the book is not all bad news. It's not the, the data is about 10% or 15% of each chapter. And my goal in the book is to pair insight with wisdom. So insight through the research, but then wisdom from the scriptures and from church history. And, you know, we, Paul, take the apostle Paul. We imagine Paul as this heroic solitary figure who did everything alone. He did nothing alone. Uh, even in prison, he talks about the comfort that he got from people who visited him and the letters that he received. And so I actually make the argument in the book, the chapter on relationships, that there are several types of relationships that we need. We need, you know, pure brother, sister, sort of, um, I, I use a Lord of the Rings analogy, Sam, where if you're Frodo, you need your Samwise. You know, <laughs> it can't carry the ring, but they can carry you. You need some peers, some people who are in the fight with you. And for me, I'm in a Zoom group with uh, pastors from around the country, two other, uh, three other pastors from around the country, and we log on Zoom um, every month. Um, because why? They're, they're peers. I can talk to them about what they're doing, and they can tell me about struggles they're having with their elders or with their staff, and it's safe. So you need dear friends, you need uh, peers. You, you also need a kind of king figure. You need an Aragorn, someone who can tell you no in your life. I run my uh, decisions to take on extra stuff to some. So that is kind of the accountability thing, but it's specifically about pace and capacity. There are people in my life who will say, no, that's too much. You shouldn't say yes to that. Uh, and then you need some sages. You need a Gandalf or two that will show up at the right moments to speak in, to say, you know, some wiser, older pastors to say, yeah, that, that don't do that. Um, but then finally, you need a healer in your life. You need, um, I think of counselors and therapists. And I don't know how it is in the UK, Sam, but in the US, it's getting better. But there's still generally the sort of sense that pastors shouldn't see therapists. We're the ones who give counsel. And I think, no, 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 that's not true. We, we get hurt. Uh, we have resentments and wounds. And if we don't treat them, they will show up. They will crack uh, and show up in different ways. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I'm always in favor of a good Lord of the Rings analogy. Um, <laughs> we're just we're just hoping and praying that Amazon Prime do a good job with it this September. Boy, that's the truth, man. <laughs> um, that's really helpful, Glenn. And, you know, as I say, it is a book that's been praised for it's kind of optimism, I suppose. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about why you why you are optimistic and why there is things in this book that you think really can help pastors? Because I think there is certainly in the British church, there's a lot of pe pessimism. Some people would call it realism. <laughs> Look yeah. at the, the overall trends are all downwards. Let's be honest here. You know, the church is not in the main growing in the UK. Yeah. And so I think a lot of pastors are quite despondent. What are the reasons to be more optimistic and to be more hopeful for the future that you would give a pastor who's feeling yeah, that's that the trouble with the word optimism and pessimism isn't it because it's it's a matter of perspective and i think of that i don't know if it's um uh, i i don't know if it's a, a legendary quote or if it's a true thing but the the missionary uh, bishop leslie newbigin you know was i was asked are you an, uh, you know what do you think about the future and he said i'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist jesus christ is is risen from the dead and that's the way I feel, Sam. I think I don't know about optimism, but I do have hope. And my hope is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And I say that not just to give kind of a churchy or Sunday school answer, but that's literally the answer Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he says, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We of all people are to be pitied. But then he goes to this whole thing about, you know, Jesus actually is risen and he's going to come again. He's going to reign until all things put under his feet. Death will be swallowed up in victory and on and on and on. It's a triumphant chapter. And the very end of it, he says, therefore, be steadfast and immovable, excelling in your work, um, knowing that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. And that's the thing that gives me hope is 
because Jesus is risen from the dead, I can take the long view here of ministry. I can take the, the, the thousand year, 2000 year view that my moment might be, might turn out to be a tiny moment in history. Uh, but my labor in the Lord will not be in vain. And actually in England, you, you have the great gift. Many, many, many churches have these things on the back of the wall that list the vicars that go back hundreds of years, you know, and I tell a story of that at the end of the book where you, re you realize to some degree, we are just stewarding one moment of history, but the Jesus who's risen from the dead will one day cause us to rise. And in the end, we'll see our, our place uh, in, in all of this. So that's, that's first and foremost, but then on a more practical level, there are three things that give me reason for hope. One is the historical church. I know we've, we've said a lot during the pandemic, oh, this is unprecedented, this is unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, every moment is unprecedented. We've never lived this moment before. But in another sense, uh, actually, there are ways in which the church has wrestled with these challenges before. And that's why so much of what I turn to in the book is to resource from church history to say, in what way is this like the church in Carthage? Or in what way is this like the challenges that Cuthbert dealt with with his calling? And, you know, so... Um, I say Cuthbert because here I am in Durham. Um, and so the historical church, but then secondly, the global church. Uh, it, it's good for us, especially in America and perhaps also in the UK. We get so myopic about the situation in the West and we forget that actually all around the world and we, we're having this conversation and we're seeing pictures on social media of Ukrainian Christians and the Ukrainian church rallying together and, and singing and encouraging and caring for each other, refusing to flee their flock. And I think, talk about resilient pastor. I mean, that's it. Those guys, that they're living that. And that's what we need to learn from and be encouraged by. Yeah. And then, and then thirdly, the collaborative church, um, which is to say, we no longer have to decide that our church, our, our one local church, it has to be the be all end all of everything for our people. No, we can, there can be symbiotic influences among the traditions, which we've already spoken about today. There can be missional partnerships in our community so that we don't have, maybe we don't have a food bank, but we can team up with so-and-so and so-and-so, and together we can address these needs in our community. And then thirdly, even within the church, there can be healthy teams where there isn't the, the, the singular solo individual, you know, superhero pastor, um, but rather a team of people who are doing the work of the ministry together. So historic church, global church, collaborative church, those are my three practical sort of reasons. That's a wonderful place to leave it, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I love what you say there about the global church because we just published a feature look at the fastest growing religious movement on earth and the fastest growing religious movement on earth is not atheism it's not islam it's pentecostalism mm -hmm. and i think when you have that global perspective it can be so helpful but glenn thank you so much for sharing it's been an absolute joy thank you so much sam you've been listening to the profile in association with premier christianity magazine <laughs>